Chapter sixty one of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Beaton was at his best when he parted for the last time with Alma Leighton, for he saw then that what had happened to him was the necessary consequence of what he had been, if not what he had done. Afterward he lost this clear vision. He began to deny the fact. He drew upon his knowledge of life and in arguing himself into a different frame of mind he alleged the case of different people who had done and been much worse things than he and yet no such disagreeable consequence had befallen them then he saw that it was all the work of blind chance and he said to himself that it was this that made him desperate and willing to call evil his good and to take his own wherever he could find it there was a great deal that was literary and factitious and tawdry in the mood in which he went to see christine dryfoos the night when the marches sat talking their prospects over and nothing that was decided in his purpose he knew what the drift of his mind was but he had always preferred to let chance determine his events and now since chance had played him such an ill turn with alma he left it the whole responsibility not in terms, but in effect, this was his thought as he walked on uptown to pay the first of the visits which Dryfoos had practically invited him to resume. He had an insolent satisfaction in having delayed it so long. If he was going back, he was going back on his own conditions, and these were to be as hard and humiliating as he could make them. But this intention again was inchoate floating the stuff of an intention rather than an intention an expression of temperament chiefly he had been expected before that christine had got out of mela that her father had been at beaton's studio and then she had gone at the old man and got from him every smallest fact of the interview there she had flung back in his teeth the good will toward herself with which he had gone to beaton she was furious with shame and resentment she told him he had made bad worse that he had made a fool of himself to no end she spared neither his age nor his grief-broken spirit in which his will could not rise against hers she filled the house with her rage screaming it out upon him but when her fury was once spent she began to have some hopes from what her father had done she no longer kept her bed every evening she dressed herself in the dress beaton admired the most and sat up till a certain hour to receive him she had fixed a day in her own mind before which if he came she would forgive him all that he had made her suffer the mortification the suspense the despair beyond this she had the purpose of making her father go to europe she felt that she could no longer live in america with the double disgrace that had been put upon her Beaton rang, and while the servant was coming, the insolent caprice seized him to ask for the young ladies, instead of the old man, as he had supposed of course he should do. The maid who answered the bell, in the place of the reluctant Irishman of other days, had all his hesitation in admitting that the young ladies were at home. He found Mela in the drawing-room. At the sight of him she looked scared, but she seemed to be reassured by his calm he asked if he was not to have the pleasure of seeing miss dryfoos too and mela said she reckoned the girl had gone upstairs to tell her mela was in black and beaton noted how well the solid sable became her rich red-blonde beauty 
he wondered what the effect would be with Christine. But she, when she appeared, was not in mourning. He fancied that she wore the lustrous black silk with the breadths of white Venetian lace about the neck which he had praised because he praised it. Her cheeks burned with a jacqueminot crimson. What should be white in her face was chalky white. She carried a plumed ostrich fan, black and soft, and after giving him her hand sat down and waved it to and fro slowly, as he remembered her doing the night they first met. She had no ideas, except such as related intimately to herself, and she had no gabble like Mela, and she let him talk. It was past the day when she promised herself that she would forgive him, but, as he talked on, she felt all her passion for him revive, and the conflict of desires, the desire to hate, the desire to love, made a dizzying whirl in her brain. She looked at him, half doubting whether he was really there or not. He had never looked so handsome, with his dreamy eyes floating under his heavy overhanging hair, and his pointed brown beard defined against his lustrous shirt-front. His mellowly modulated, mysterious voice lulled her when Mela made an errand out of the room, and Beaton crossed to her and sat down by her, she shivered. "'Are you cold?' he asked, and she felt the cruel mockery and exultant consciousness of power in his tone, as perhaps a wild thing feels captivity in the voice of its keeper. But now, she said, she would still forgive him if he asked her. Mela came back, and the talk fell again to the former level. But Beaton had not said anything that really meant what she wished and she saw that he intended to say nothing. Her heart began to burn like a fire in her breast. "'You been telling him about our going to Europe?' Mela asked. "'No,' said Christine briefly, and looking at the fan spread out on her lap. Beaton asked when, and then he rose, and said if it was so soon, he supposed he should not see them again unless he saw them in Paris. He might very likely run over during the summer.' He said to himself that he had given it a fair trial with Christine, and he could not make it go. Christine rose with a kind of gasp, and mechanically followed him to the door of the drawing-room. Mela came too, and while he was putting on his overcoat she gurgled and bubbled in good humour with all the world. Christine stood looking at him, and thinking how still handsomer he was in his overcoat, and that fire burned fiercer in her. She felt him more than life to her, and knew him lost, and the frenzy that makes a woman kill the man she loves, or fling vitriol to destroy the beauty she cannot have for all hers, possessed her lawless soul. He gave his hand to Mela, and said, in his wind-harp stop, "'Good-bye.' As he put out his hand to Christine, she pushed it aside with a scream of rage. She flashed at him, and with both hands made a feline pass at the face he bent toward her. He sprang back, and after an instant of stupefaction, he pulled open the door behind him and ran out into the street. "'Well, Christine Dryfoos,' said Mela, sprang at him like a wildcat. "'I don't care,' Christine shrieked. "'I'll tear his eyes out.' She flew upstairs to her own room, and left the burden of the explanation to Bela, who did it justice. Beaton found himself, he did not know how, in his studio, reeking with perspiration and breathless. He must almost have run. He struck a match with a shaking hand and looked at his face in the glass. He expected to see the bleeding marks of her nails on his cheeks, but he could see nothing. 
he grovelled inwardly it was all so low and coarse and vulgar it was all so just and apt to his deserts there was a pistol among the dusty bric-a-brac on the mantel which he had kept loaded to fire at a cat in the area he took it and sat looking into the muzzle wishing it might go off by accident and kill him it slipped through his hand and struck the floor and there was a report he sprang into the air feeling that he had been shot but he found himself still alive with only a burning line along his cheek such as one of christine's fingernails might have left he laughed with cynical recognition of the fact that he had got his punishment in the right way and that his case was not to be dignified into tragedy End of chapter 61